Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The opening of Ephesians, if read correctly, I think will shift our understanding of the Christian faith. I'll tell you three ways, and then I'll tell you what I told you. The first way is that Christ is not an accidental intrusion into creation. And by Christ, I mean Christ incarnate. But rather, Christ incarnate is the inner ground of creation and its goal, number one. Number two, the primacy of Christ as the fundamental reason for the incarnation, it describes then what we might call a Christocentric or a theocentric understanding. And the idea here is that the incarnation widens the meaning of salvation, if we understand it in the way that I'm describing, and places it in a cosmic context. And Paul will use again and again the fullness of the mystery of Christ. And so were the mysteries, it's been revealed. The point is Christ incarnation, it's not a fallback plan. Whoops, there was sin, now we've got to do something. The word predestined will be used throughout this opening section. And number three, the creation is not anthropocentric, It is Christocentric, which certainly includes then human beings, but also the cosmos. So Christ is not simply Redeemer, though he is certainly Redeemer, but the point of his redemption, it exceeds salvation from sin. Redemption is not being saved from, you know, simply being saved from something, but it's being made whole for the healing and the wholeness of God's creation. And so creation's purpose, to state it simply, is found in Christ. And this is the meaning of words that we use, predestination, redemption, incarnation, creation itself. They're all inclusive then of our part in incarnation. You know, even the idea of the church is a continuation of the incarnation. Certainly, justification, salvation, the sovereignty of God. These need to be fit to this primary interpretive frame of Scripture. So Christ, I believe, does not satisfy the wrath of God. He satisfies the love of God. He satisfies the eternal love of the Father, the fatherhood that from the beginning found expression in creating the world, giving, as Paul says, all men the riches of creation, making him little less than God. He was created in the image and likeness of God, and in him alone the fatherhood of God is satisfied. So with those points in mind, let's read a portion of the opening of Ephesians, verses 7 to 12. Chapter 1. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration 
suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. I'm afraid that a fundamental teaching of the New Testament is largely lost to the Western tradition, but it's been preserved, if undeveloped, in the East. And that is that the incarnate Christ, Jesus Christ, is the goal, the structuring order, or the inner ground of creation. St. Francis of Assisi and the Franciscans partially recover this understanding with this appreciation of creation. Karl Barth, the 20th century theologian, he also then, in a kind of deep appreciation of the grammar of scripture, he refers to the Bible as a strange new world that we enter into. And I think it's only in recognizing that the incarnation is not the fallback plan. You know, utilize, do, oh, now there's the accident, people sin, now we've got to do something. No, this is God's predestined purpose. And that understanding provides the coherence to biblical doctrines that I'm afraid we've just misconstrued even the basic idea of salvation. What is salvation? What is predestination? It is not creation and fall which give rise to the necessity of incarnation. Rather, creation, and this is in Athanasius, an early church father, in his explanation, it is an effect, he says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so where we imagine it is sin that necessitated the incarnation, failed humanity, you know, and its potential recovery, that becomes the meaning feeding into all of our key theological concepts. And so, for example, the doctrine of predestination that's brought up in the opening passage here, it becomes a kind of abstract doctrine about who is in and who is out, who God chose and who he didn't, rather than what it's really about, about God's predestined purpose in creation found in Christ. And for Bart, this decision of God before all time, and with him the early church fathers, to be who he is for humanity, that's the basic Christian truth. And all the other Christian truths are built upon this. And in this reformulation of the doctrine, it's central to who God is. God is the electing God. Electing whom? Electing Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together, Bart says, make a choice that the Son of God will become the elected man, Jesus of Nazareth. The triune God eternally elects, from eternity elects or chooses to be who he is for humanity, the God of grace and love. And so in Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, God is both the elector and the one who is elected. So Bart wrote, In the midst of time it happened that God became man for our good, while underlining the uniqueness of this event, we have to reflect that this was not an accident. 
not one historical event among others. This is the reason under which history unfolds. It is the event which God willed from eternity. And so the original sense of predestination is really that there is no time before this predestined purpose, right? And among the earliest church fathers, it's not simply the disincarnate word. You know, this is the opening of John. In the beginning was the word. But it's the incarnate Jesus around which creation's meaning flows. Athanasius barely even mentions the birth of Jesus as he's writing about the incarnation because he's talking about incarnation as the purpose behind creation. Creation's purpose is found in Jesus Christ. And that's the meaning of predestination. That's the meaning of redemption. Cosmic completion. The completion of creation. And that's the meaning of the church in that it is a continuation of the incarnation. And so Jesus Christ as the unfolding singular purpose, as Paul is picturing it here, of all things, I think it's what makes sense of many passages we might think are difficult passages. You know, Romans 9 to 11, it talks about the pot that is created for destruction, as if there is arbitrary cruelty and reward on the part of God. But Israel's election or predestined purpose had always involved being narrowed down. You know, it's from Isaac to Jacob, and there is this narrowing down to the preeminent purpose of the Messiah. That's who it gets narrowed down to, and it's the Messiah who is going to be cast away. Not simply for Israel, not simply for a few lucky souls, but for the redemption of the world, for the redemption of the cosmos. And so Paul notes in chapter 11 at the end of that section in Romans 9, God has shut up all in disobedience, 11.32, so that he may show mercy to all. And then he ends the chapter on a note of universality, and this same idea is found in Ephesians, it's found in Colossians. For from him and through him and to him are all things. There's the summation of the purpose. As he says it in Ephesians 1.10, From him and through him, Christ is the summing up of all things, things in the heavens and things on the earth. This is what has been predestined. This is the one who has been predestined. As he says in verse 4, he was predestined before the foundation of the world. And we then are predestined in him. And so there is no choice preceding this choice. This is an eternal fact about who God is. The point being Jesus Christ, the incarnate Christ, is not a contingent or accidental reflection of God, you know, dependent upon all God creates and then man messes it up and now we got... No, creation is an outworking of the love of God found in Christ. It describes, as Paul says, to the divine eminence, that is, to who God is in himself. Verse 9, chapter 1 having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. We've entered into the imminent 
counsel of God in knowing Christ. And so salvation is not simply deliverance from sin. It certainly is that. But it's the fulfillment of who God is in Christ for creation. And so Jesus, you know, if he's reduced to, oh, well, he's the guy that helps us get rid of sin. And we just sum it up in that. What gets lost are the purposes for all of creation fulfilled in Christ. And really the purpose that is there in the church as a continuation of the fulfillment of God's purposes. Certainly salvation is the overcoming of sin. But the fullness of redemption is the completion of creation, of creation's purpose. And so Paul, I believe in this opening passage, he's moved our understanding of God's plan beyond the earth, beyond the human race, to its cosmic impact as part of the outworking of the love of God, the very essence of God. The whole point of who God is and what God was doing is summed up in the incarnate Christ. The completion of, a, of creation. I believe that accounts for history in a Christian understanding. All the movements of history. You know, it's already there in Genesis. There is an incompleteness of creation in the first Adam. Remember? This isn't good, God says. And there is an unfolding of creation's purpose in the second chapter. The completion of man by the creation of woman means creation is an open-ended process. It's not ended with Genesis 1. The creation of woman is actually the whole inner basis of humankind. It's certainly there contained in the name Adam. Adam just means man. And it's an ongoing realization. In the second Adam, Christ is called the second Adam. He completes the emergence of the human capacity to bear the image of God. And the second Adam and his bride, the church, conjoin the human and the divine for eternity. Paul pictures it in two ways. He pictures it as an accomplished fact. This happened. But he also pictures it as an unfolding fact. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men, Romans 5.18. But then the next verse, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. They're being made righteous. So the church as the bride of Christ, which is, I believe, the fulfillment of the chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis. Creation is unfolding. It indicates that cosmic predestination was always the unfolding goal, the telos, summing up of all things. You know, this is Paul in Ephesians later on. For this reason, he goes back, he quotes Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Just quoting Genesis. But then he says, this mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Here is the revealing of the mystery that was there in Genesis. The bringing of the man and the woman is fulfilled in the person of Christ and the church. Here, Paul says, is the mystery of his will unfolding. Now, we could argue, you know, that there is a lost sense of this between, and it's retained in the Eastern Church. 
You know, whose, whose fault is this? I don't know that it matters. Maybe it was Augustine. You know, Augustine had an idea that no physician would have been sent, Christ the great physician, unless the disease of sin had been present. Well, there's a fallacy inherent in his reasoning. It's true to say that God became human to redeem us. That's true. But is that all of the truth? It does not follow that Christ did only this or even primarily this. The affirmative proposition, yes, we need the great physician, but it's not an exclusive proposition. That is that he came to redeem us, but he did so much more. And there's so much more of a positive understanding. So maybe it was Augustine. Maybe it was Anselm's singular focus on God's honor being impugned by sin. And so the honor has to be paid for. And this is what Christ did. Calvin will pick this up and make it even worse and talk about there needs to be a payment to God so God won't be angry. In other words, the whole thing gets built upon the anger of God and satisfying his anger. There's none of that in this book. I don't believe there's any of that in any of the books. But Paul is talking about the fulfillment of God's love. But what is certain? However, this exchange between the Father and the Son, all based on a kind of legal arrangement, that just sort of captures the Western church. But what is certain is that Eastern thought and small remnants of Western sensibility, they were not simply focused on this legal accomplishment, but rather on what Paul is describing, the fulfillment of cosmological purposes. And so if you go back to the early church, you go back to Irenaeus, he insisted on the primacy of the incarnate word, that is Jesus Christ. We need both names. That with salvation, it's not restricted to redemption from sin, but he describes it as all of humanity, all of creation is led from infancy to a state of maturity. And he calls it recapitulation. Think of John 1.1. There is a recreation occurring in Christ. It includes the summing up of the entire cosmos, Irenaeus says under Christ who is the head. And so in his theory of atonement, he speaks about all humanity was created good, but tainted by sin, but that all of creation is being recapitulated and restored under the new headship of Christ. And so what was preserved in this understanding in the East? It was there just pervasively in the early church. We might call it the primacy of Christ or Christocentrism. That is that all of scripture is being read through the purposes of Christ. The idea in Colossians 1.15 that he is the firstborn of every creature, the image of the invisible God. Or the Johannine notion of God's recommencement of creation. I believe this is just a fundamental doctrine of the New Testament. I believe this is the glue that holds it all together. And in some way, the glue is often missing. Now, it's there, it's operative in Franciscan theology. There is a popular writer, he's a Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr. 
is capturing this idea of what we might call the cosmic Christ. I believe it's recovered in part, at least, by Karl Barth, but it's been maintained as a key part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So, for example, Maximus the Confessor. He is typical of many Eastern theologians. He held that the Incarnation would have taken place without a fall. The fall is not the impetus behind the Incarnation. It's there in the Western Church also in Duns Scotus. He was a Franciscan Scottish friar. He says the Incarnation takes place in light of God's glory and not due to any sin committed prior to the Incarnation. So the Incarnation represents not a divine response to a human need for salvation, but instead the divine intention from all eternity to raise human nature to the glory of God, the point of glory, uniting humankind with divine nature. And so God is perfect love and wills according to the perfection of that love. And perfect love cannot will anything less than the perfection of that love. That's what's being worked out. Christ would have come in the highest glory in creation to work out that perfection even were there no sin. And so in this understanding, the meaning, the constitution and meaning of the cosmos, it's summed up in Christ who redeems fallen humanity, but who is primarily the completion of the cosmos and it pertains to the integration of all things you know Paul says heaven and earth all things are summed up in Christ let me say it this way I think we can lose the integration even between nature and grace or even between the works of Christ and the life of Christ and that's what's happened in western theology but if we see in Christ the completion of creation. I believe we can read his life, his death, his resurrection as a movement of one piece. And so the Western focus on law or forensics, it tends to split. It splits heaven and earth, but it also splits the person of Christ, the work and the man. We might speak, you know, in the Western church, there is a kind of primary emphasis on Paul. Paul misunderstood. There's a primary emphasis on law, on the cross, and there's a downgrading of teachings like the Sermon on the Mount. Very difficult teaching that often gets left out of Western notions of salvation. There is a de-emphasis of the resurrection. Oh, that's just sort of tacked on, a nice miracle at the end. It, of course, is a misconstrual of Paul, but key terms are abstracted from the person and work of Christ. And so I think with the understanding that I'm describing key terms such as justification, what does that word mean? Does that mean we're legally justified by, before God? There's no sense of that in the Bible. Justification means things are being made right. Righteousness. Rectification in Irenaeus' terms of a cosmic proportion. Making things right for the cosmos. That's an apocalyptic act of God in Christ. Even such a term as faith. You know, we all think we know what faith means. But it 
is actually not pertaining to Christ as the object of our faith, but it's a participation in the faithfulness of Christ. Not reduplicating his faith, but participating in the very origin of faith. As Karl Barth describes it, we have a part in the faithfulness of God established in us when we meet Christ Jesus. As John Paul II put it, he satisfied the Father's eternal love that fatherhood from the beginning found expression in creating the world, giving man all the riches of creation, making him little less than God. In other words, here is the image that takes on its proper role. Christ is the true image of God, and in being part of Christ, we then become the image in which we were created. Now I'm going to end with a strange illustration. And I, I may have already lost you, and if I haven't lost you, I hope this doesn't. Remember Leonardo da Vinci's The Vitruvian Man? It's a picture of a man. He's a naked man. Many think it's Leonardo da Vinci himself. He has his arms like this. Actually, there's some 16 different positions that the Vitruvian Man is illustrating. We really don't know. We know that this was not da Vinci's original idea. In the Vitruvian Man, there's a circle and then there's a square, and that's significant. Ancient thinkers had considered the circle as representative of the divine, and the square as representative of the earthly. And Leonardo, in the spirit of the age of the Renaissance, assumed that divine proportion, they're literally measuring the distance, you know, of the, the arms spread out is the height of a man. And the idea is that within the proportions of the human body, there is the secret of the universe. The idea was that humankind is the microcosm. You remember the word microcosm? We said the temple in Israel was the microcosm of the cosmos. I believe that what is happening in the Renaissance, in the Enlightenment, is that what we would have normally said about Christ or the Jews would have said about the temple, in the Enlightenment they're just saying that about human beings. Da Vinci said, man was termed a lesser world. The body, he says, is an analog for the world. And so what Leonardo and the Renaissance are rediscovering is the anthropocentric nature of the world. That is, the world is created, for, it seems to just fit us, right? The, the alignment of everything accommodates, sustains human life. But what I'm saying today, I think what Paul is saying, is that actually we may miss it if we think the universe is simply anthropocentric. Apart from a focus, a more central focus on the person of Christ, I believe that the notion that the world is created for human beings has proven highly destructive. Destructive to nature, and destructive to other humans. Christ, I believe, is the true Vitruvian man. He accomplishes the squaring of the circle, the principle bringing the circle and the square, the divine and the human, together. The ordering principle of the circle is fit to the square of the world in the notion that Christ is the center and meaning of the cosmos. Now what I'm saying is not so wild because we do have artists portraying the crucified Christ in the very way that 
da Vinci portrayed the Vitruvian man. That in this reinterpretation of the Renaissance ideal, creation is not anthropocentric, it's Christocentric. Christ is the true representative of cosmic purposes, the coming together of the human and divine. The Son is the one who from all eternity receives the Father's love and is totally responsible, responsive to it. And because of the relationship between the Father and Son, that's the ontological basis of all other relations in creation. Created reality bears the stamp of sonship in the deepest core of its being. Christ is the Redeemer, but redemption is not simply being saved from, but rather being made whole for God's creation purposes found in Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.